The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera's Ghost Light podcast, a behind-the-curtain look at the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Our guest today is Utah Symphony principal percussionist Keith Carrick. Keith joined Utah Symphony in 2012 after several seasons with the Sarasota Orchestra. He grew up in Maryland, but did all of his collegiate studies in Boston. Keith is here to tell us about life as an orchestral percussionist and maybe give us some insight into why audiences love his section so much, maybe more than any other. Welcome, Keith. Thanks for that intro, Jeff. Yeah, we're glad to have you here. We've had a bunch of Utah Symphony musicians, and we've even had a percussionist, but we've never really talked about what it's like back in that dark corner of the stage. Describe the life of an orchestral percussionist. Dark corner of the stage, you make it seem like it's seedy or something. When well, it's really just, I mean, if the shoe yeah. fits. Right, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so, well, um, I'm trying to think. There's, I mean, there's a couple of ways to answer that question. <laughs> So from a practical standpoint, standing at the back of the stage can be really tricky. I mean, I'm the furthest one away from the conductor most of the time. And and that can actually pose some like some serious issues when it comes to actually trying to play with the rest of the orchestra. I'm like I'm I'm basically like an audience member sometimes. I'm that far away. Uh so from a practical standpoint, uh you just have to learn like what it means to like play from a distance, play with a sound that's never even occurred. I have to play, I have to anticipate that far ahead most of the time. It's a very interesting kind of experience. From an emotional standpoint, if you want to call it that, <laughs> um, if in order to be a percussionist, the I would say the, the number one quality you have to have is you actually have to love listening to classical music because I do it a lot. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you know, that's also, that's one of the jokes we get all the time about, you know us just sitting around playing one note. Right. Um, and there is a there is a little bit of truth to that, an element of truth, which is that I sit and I listen a lot. So if you don't like classical music, um, being a percussionist in a symphony is really going to, it's going to drive you up the wall. I'm sure it can be yeah. physically taxing too, because you're, you're moving around a lot usually in a piece, especially yeah. if it's a piece with a lot of busy percussion parts. So, I mean, you're, you're putting in, you're, you get a lot of steps in during a concert, don't you? It can be yeah. certain concerts. So there's different kinds of exhaustion that can come, right? Obviously we can get physically like stressed from something the way any other instrument can, you know, some sort of repetitive stress or just like, I can feel sore after playing cymbals all night or my hands can hurt just from the straps, like pulling on them. Um, you know, playing snare drum for a long period of time can wear you down. You can just feel tired. You know, uh, the one thing that we do have to our advantage is that we, since we play so many different instruments, if I get tired playing on the one thing, odds are I play it for a little bit and I play something completely different. So I use different muscle groups. So a lot, like a lot of times you can save yourself that way, um, especially if you're practicing for a long period of time. Or if I'm playing a piece, you know, if I'm playing a couple of different things that can help your keep you uh your mind sharp too because i have to switch to play vibraphone and then i have to go back to play triangle and play snare drum hit the bass drum go back to the vibes you know you're not just trapped in one little brain space i'm glad you mentioned the multiple instrument aspect of your work because you know there's a lot of stuff back there and i wonder in your world there's a lot of specialization i imagine or maybe you're supposed to be a mm -hmm. jack of all mm -hmm. trades mm -hmm. how does it work for you guys yeah kind of depends uh usually there's a uh, a timpanist and that would be a specialized trade. All of us play a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. The timpanist usually has come from some sort of a school program or has maybe even played percussion in the past and can always play percussion now. 
but typically they'll just do that. Now in the percussion section, we always have an associate timpanist. Um, most orchestras, the, the large orchestras will have one so that when you have two timpani parts, you have another person that has some, you know, some specialized timpani training or to have somebody to cover. Cause if you lose, you know, your only timpanist in the orchestra, you definitely want somebody that can cover them on a concert if they're off. Um, but generally, uh, when it comes to the rest of the percussion, um, we, we all, I think have our preferences, but we're all like required to play everything at a very high level. We have to be able to, to bring it when we need it on sort of anything else. Do people gravitate, though, towards certain things? Like I've noticed as an audience member, you mm -hmm. do a lot of the prominent snare drum playing. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, but is there like a cymbal person in the section? Is I there mean, a person who's the best, you know, keyboard mallet player? I mean, I think it just depends on the moment. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, like I love playing mallets. Like if I'm at home, I like to play my marimba. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, not every uh, piece has a great mallet part in it. So I might be playing mallets at work, but I may not, I may not like the part, right. you know? So like on this piece, oh, the snare drum has the cool part. On this piece, the bass drum has the cool part. Uh, in terms of gravitating, like not really. I think it's healthy, um, you know, me being principal and assigning the parts, I think it's healthy to kind of rotate us through things. I don't want somebody to feel like they spent their entire career playing cymbals and never got a chance to play something else. I think that would be creatively uh, stifling to somebody that could probably... Um, I think really hurt them. That's part of your leadership role, I guess, is to spread the wealth a little bit, make yeah. sure everybody gets to try everything yeah. once in a while. Yeah. Well, I, I want everyone to have a chance to, you know, try everything and yeah. play everything. Yeah. I've often wondered, you know, there might be four percussionists. Yeah. And so you're all moving around different instruments. Is that something that you assign? Do you create the track for the instruments oh, yeah. that they is have to have? Is it choreographed? I mean, well, always, I just, always. I just wondered if, if does the part come and say this person's going to do all these things, or do you have to create that? It, it sort of depends. Sometimes um, the publishing house will send out like uh, like parts, and they'll say takes three percussion, and then you and it's it just says percussion one, two, and three, and then you open it up, and the percussion three part is like bass drum, cymbals, marimba, and timpani, and you're like, wait a minute, that's actually like three percussion on that one part. <laughs> um, and other times, like. Um, the composer or the composer you know the composer just writes the piece and then the publisher like says well i'm going to put uh the bass drum and cymbals on this part and the triangle and tambourine on this part uh, but they don't tell you how many people it is they just put it there so then you need some you need a percussionist to like pull it out look at it and see like oh actually this is like one player this is two players and then um you know what i'm really super careful about doing is like making sure that player one is standing in front of the instrument they need to be in front of at any given moment in the piece so uh, what i'm trying to avoid is player one is playing the chimes you know way down in the corner and uh and two bars later they need to play the bass drum on the other side of the stage i just and, had a vision of know. waiting for guffman when that trumpet player <laughs> is also then hitting the timpani i just had yes, that moment yes, in my yes, head yeah so so there um there's certainly some um I suppose I could start um, assigning people to parts where they have to run across the stage for uh, for a visual effect. I'm sure it would be exciting for the audience and lovely. And the percussionists would be glaring at me the whole time while they run by. Of course, I'm sure I would get some really, I would get some some um, some grumpiness. Uh, you guys do move quickly the back there sometimes. Sometimes you have no choice. There's just oh, yeah. there's oh, yeah. choreography that just requires yeah, people it, to be fleet. Of course, that can be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, it can be fun. Yeah. So a lot of times when people who maybe don't know all the ins and outs of the symphony world are joking about symphony jobs, they think the easiest job must be playing the triangle. Oh, and they, yeah. they imagine that there's one guy 
or woman whose only job is just to play the triangle once or twice, oh, yeah. you know, a yeah. season. So what do you say to those people that are making those jokes when they think you're just being paid to bang on things? Yeah. Okay. So um, I want you to imagine for a moment that your only job tonight is to hit this one triangle note in this one particular place. And then you stand up and you miss it. <laughs> it's, it's the ultimate you had one job scenario. <laughs> and then think about the kind of pressure you put on yourself to play that one note. I and, no, and I don't want to. And then and then think about what happens like if the conductor is looking at you and they make a thing out of it and then you miss it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like we all do our roles. There are times when the when the violins are are just working their butts off and they're playing the hard stuff and I'm like doing nothing. And then there are times when I'm playing one note, but it's like the most important note there. Yeah. You know, it has to be there. So, um, is it easy? No. I mean, not always. Yeah, sitting in my chair is easy. But I mean, nothing is nothing is so easy. We we hold ourselves at such a high standard. Sometimes, I mean, honestly, maybe too high. It makes it worse. Yeah. You know, when you put pile too much pressure on yourself like that. Well, I have to say, from my own experience with percussion, which is not vast, let's just say that. But I had to. I remember once during a Rossini opera, I was playing the harpsichord part, and I had to get a chime and play midnight strike. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing to me at that moment more stressful than having to try to make 12 chime strikes sound exactly the same. Yeah. It's yeah. just not easy. No, and that's no. my little experience of it. And that's what you do all the time to try to come up with that consistency. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are certain instruments um, that like, they, they all just pose their different problems. You know, it's like, you'd be amazed. Like when the conductor is like looking at you, you're playing the gong you know, or the Tam Tam and, and they're like, they're like, can that be a little softer? You imagine, you actually know how hard that is to do. It's like to, you have this giant dinner plate thing hanging <laughs> off a rack and you're trying to dial in like this, like very precise amount of weight. And it is like, that is super hard to do over and over and over again. That like, you know, I have to concentrate. You wouldn't expect it, but yeah, you yeah. got to think about it for a minute. It's got to be there. Yeah. You know? And then, and then the conductor's like all over you and you're just like, it seems like the thing to remember is that one triangle note, though maybe hilarious to someone on the outside, as th- that it, that could be somebody's job. That one triangle note is a solo. Yes, yes, it's a solo. So all of the pressure of a solo is on you for that one split second in that thirty mm-hmm. to fifty minute piece. So yeah, yeah, it can be like that. Yeah. And I mean, it's just a crushing blow if it doesn't go the way you expect, you, <laughs> you know, just you worry about it until you get there. If you miss it, you worry about it until the piece is over. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, and I mean, it's like it, just like any other instrument on stage, like you look at a triangle, you look at a cymbal, you look at a snare drum, the glockenspiel, like, uh, you know, I'm choosing the, you know, I, I have to place that note exactly where I want it in the feel of the piece. I'm choosing, you know, the timbre of it the weight of it, the sustain of it. I'm doing all of that, you know, and that's, and that's where the training really comes in. It's like, I'm deciding like, how much do I want this note to sparkle? Do I want it to have like, does it should be a dark sparkle? It should be like a really bright sparkle. And then like, you know, the composers, one of the things that people really don't know about percussion is that the composer never, um, or very few composers will tell you how long the notes are. Like, you know, in a, in a violin, they'll write like, a quarter note and you play a quarter note but in ours it'll like they'll write a quarter note and it's actually supposed to ring for like 16 beats they don't even they don't write that you just have to mm-hmm. use your ear and so you know i i'm like you know you see that one little note there and there's a lot packed into there that i have to decide i'm glad you mentioned composers because i want to know from you if there are we talked a little bit about strauss and i don't know where he ranks in your sort of pantheon of 
percussion composers, but are there particular orchestra and opera composers that write especially well for your section? I mean, what pieces are you most excited to see on the calendar when a new season gets announced? Yeah. I mean, that's it. Once again, it just depends, right? I mean, um, I always, I always love the impressionistic composers. You know, I really love like seeing Ravel and Debussy on, on there. I love that music. I love what the, the effects that they ask us to achieve. Um, but you know, it's like Stravinsky writes great, great percussion parts too. You know, I mean, I don't play a lot of Beethoven symphonies, but you know, the Timothy parts are fantastic, you know, and I, I can, I can appreciate those without ever needing to really be in the hot seat for that, for those symphonies. But, um, you know, uh, Mahler writes great stuff. You know, we have these, these wonderful, like just textures with, you know, it's like the things he can do with just placing a cymbal crash in the right place. It can, it's, it's amazing to like, to see it come together like that. Um, you know, and for me, I don't know, you know, I, you get this question a lot. And I think it's like a general question you get for like musicians, like what's your favorite composer? Right. Right. And it's just like, I don't know. It depends on the moment. Sure. It depends. And sometimes it's like a piece that I hate or it's like, I've never liked this percussion writing. It's super awkward. And you get the right conductor up there and all of a sudden you get it. I don't know. It can change. You can change your mind. So, uh, I guess vice versa, you get the wrong conductor up there sometimes and they kind of ruin it for you, but let's hope um, that happens less. Often. Yeah. I mean, well, you, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this idea of your yeah. opinion of things evolving over time, which I'm sure any musician would admit is true for them as well. I mean, are you at the point yet in your career where you, when you see Bolero scheduled that you groan or is that I, still I something you like doing? I don't know that there was ever a time I didn't groan when I saw Bolero <laughs> listed on the list for any number of reasons. You sure. never know how it's going to go. That piece yeah. is hard. Yeah. It's super hard for me. Yeah. Well, Ravel, like, Ravel's groaning it. in his grave when he sees it on most people's <laughs> list too, unfortunately. But. I mean, I love Bolero, <laughs> yeah. but I was thinking last time I saw it programmed, I think one of the last times we saw it, um, I remember that, uh, Terry Fisher brought you out and you were in the violin section and I thought to play the snare drum to part. play the snare drum part mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Uh, for those of if surely no one out there doesn't know Bolero but it doesn't stop right and mm-hmm. I mean, how does that feel to be brought out in the front is that weird for you because oh. suddenly you weren't in your little distant oh, yeah. world yeah it's weird it's a completely different part of the stage I don't sit at the front of the stage or even the middle of the stage that often it's a completely different like just sonic atmosphere um you know I remember remarking to some of the string players like you know, I don't hear like the the um the bow noise, like the hair noise ever. And then you're sitting next to him and you're like, Whoa, that's really loud. That doesn't leave this place and like that's different. And then, you know, it's like I'm sitting up front and you know, the percussion comes in, um, the other the second snare drum comes in about I don't know, two thirds of the way through. Um and that's really strange to hear percussion behind me. Because right. you're like 35 feet away. That never happens. Percussion comes from the sides of me. Right. Never right. comes from behind me. That's really strange. Um, and then, you know, learning, like, it's like, I'm used to anticipating a lot. You don't anticipate nearly as much when you're sitting up front. So I have to like, think about that a lot too. It's, and then, you know, trying to be sensitive. Um, there's a, there's a reason why percussion's at the back of the stage. Um, the, the, I guess there's a a couple of different, really important reasons. One of the reasons is that our, our instruments, they need room to blend, um, you know, a tambourine or a cymbal or something doesn't sound very good when you're standing right next to it. Sounds really good when you get a get a little bit of distance, and so I think a lot of the orchestra is used to hearing the snare drum from a little bit of distance, and when they hear the snare drum right next to them, that can be a little it can be a little scary, it can be a little different, a little um, you know, a little tricky, and I I totally understand that, and I'm sensitive to that because you know I realize why I'm at the back of the stage, mm-hmm. you know I know like what I'm doing there and why that's important, and then when I move up it's like, 
oh, it's all, it's all, it, it just brings it all back to the surface. I'm thinking about all of it again. At least they didn't put a big spotlight on you. Yeah, I guess they could have. <laughs> yeah, that could have definitely happened. Yeah, yeah. Maybe next time. Yeah, please. Let's can we edit that out? So can <laughs> <not> go away. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We don't want that. That we don't want that anyone to get ideas. Well, talking about having the spotlight on the percussion, percussion concertos have become a real growth area in the industry lately. Why do you think that audiences react so favorably to these works? What's the hook? What's getting people excited? We're making the assumption that the audiences are always reacting favorably to the concertos. I've seen the audience get really excited when they see the percussionist bopping around in the front. Okay. I mean, I think audiences always love something new. Um, And I think percussion, it's, it's something that's just hasn't been highlighted in the way it has in the past few decades and more and more so. And so I think, um, I think that's, first of all, it's just something it's, it's new, it's flashy. It's something they haven't experienced before. You don't usually see somebody come up and, you know, rip away at a bunch of wood blocks and a marimba and, you know, you don't get to hear those things that often. So I still think there's definitely some of that. Percussion is also, it's like part um, musical skill and part performance art, right? So there's definitely this visual aspect that comes definitely into play. Yeah, physicality, athleticism. Yeah, yeah. and and that's more and more what I th- what we're seeing in the concertos too is making the soloist like really hustle a little bit, and that that builds a certain level of drama that that's a different kind of drama than we get from other seeing them other spread from one end of. To yeah, their little area to the yeah, other. yeah, yeah, and and just watching somebody play something like um, when you think about you know what we see um, uh, percussionists doing in like the uh, the Tan Dunn Water Concerto, mm-hmm, right. right? Where they're they're manipulating water in all these different ways. That's like fascinating. Yeah, that's captivating in and of itself because you're just like, what sound is that going to make? Yeah. So it can be you know seeing those things like that's got to be something you never even thought about. And that's yeah. interesting. This made me one of the things I thought about. I always wonder about percussionists. Do you sit around and look at everyday objects all the time and wonder what it would sound like if you hit it with a stick? Um, my wife doesn't let me do that anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the answer used to be yes. I've always found that you guys, at least when I was in college, there was a certain DIY aspect to your life. Like you were, the, the percussionists were constantly walking around, yeah. banging on everything they saw. Well, Yes, usually out of necessity. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, so that is, that's a part of what we do, of course, is like um, a lot of percussion music is, it's like found objects or it's sort of not clear what instrument it's supposed to be. And you need to kind of figure that out. And like so what's th- going to make the sound you need. Yeah, so that can end up being a lot of experimentation and a lot of like, you know, pulling out the pots and pans and, you know, and banging on different tables. And there are pieces that are specifically written for this kind of thing, too. So, I mean, we're we're kind of egged on. It's not all our fault. Yeah. We're kind of encouraged. Well, and yeah. Keith brought some show and tell objects, which yeah, show, we will we'll more have the tell it's, than the show we, since we we're are, radio. We are on audio medium. <laughs> yeah, yeah, audio yeah, medium. Yeah, yeah. That, um, tell me what I'm holding. Okay, so this is a, sp- this is a, um, this is a spring coil, just like the one that would be on your car or your truck. Um, so how do you play it, Keith? Yeah. The... So okay, here I'm gonna. So I'm holding it up. Grab... It's a spring coil. It's about uh, 18 inches. So Keith's wide. going over to get his stick bag, or at least one of the items from the stick, stick. bag. Yeah, a stick. So what do you stick. what do you use this for? Okay, what piece okay. is this gonna show up in? Yeah, mostly contemporary works. Um, I'm trying to remember the piece that 
was specifically from um, the reason why I went out and got this. So the story behind this particular spring coil was that um, we were doing a work, I think it was a premiere or maybe it was like the second time it had been done. It was pretty pretty early on in the work's lifespan and it called for a spring coil. And um, the problem is when you go into a situation where you're gonna have a composer and a conductor both scrutinizing, and they say spring coil is that if you just have one spring coil, um, they're not going to like it. Right. <laughs> right. So don't you have another one? Exactly. They always want something to compare it to. So, um, my problem was that, uh, we didn't really have enough spring coils. So, uh, I actually went to the junkyard. I went to a, like an auto yard and I wandered around with the gentleman there and we just picked through heaps of broken cars until I found spring coils that sounded good. So how many did you end up bringing have, to I, rehearsal? I brought three. Um, I took them. I took them home and I um, I sanded them down, got all the rust off them, and cleaned them up so they would look professional for a symphony orchestra. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that was the right call or not. Maybe they want something more authentic. <laughs> um, but then uh, and then yeah, so you bring them, bring them into work, and basically what you do is you 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 suspend it in some way. This one just has like a a loop with a string on it so I can hold it up and then um you know you could just hit it um I, I prefer the method of just like running like a like a metal mallet down the the coil like Let's hear it. so it's magical that's right. a great sound I'm, so just so the listeners know the spring coil we're looking at right now clearly came off of a delivery truck or something at least that big <laughs> yeah do that one more time go big or go home yeah, you yeah. know what I mean yeah okay so fantastic oh. right right what so, else do you have? Yeah. Okay. Well, I brought like a lot of like sort of the the instruments. Basically, when it comes to percussion, hand me that bag there. Yeah. So when it comes to percussion, if it doesn't fit nicely in another instrument group, we get stuck with it, which means that we do a lot of different, a lot of different sort of uh, sound effects. So what I brought here, this is my klaxon horn. This is sort of the uwuga sound, <laughs> but uh, in reality, you know. Um, the the horns they didn't really make that like ooga sound so so gracefully so this one this is a real one I bought this off eBay it's like actually like off some sort of old car anyway yeah this is like and, and you didn't get as much of the rust sanded off of that one <laughs> no no I I kind of like the vintage the vintage style on this one so yep. anyway so this is a klaxon horn okay here we go this. <laughs> right it's like a, an old car yeah that's what it sounds like yeah. Um, we talk about, like, I brought a couple of different kinds of rain sticks. So this is just what I'm talking about when I talk about options. Is like, it's not just like one rain stick. There's all these different moments that happen. So I'm trying to imitate rain, you know. The composer just writes rain stick. So what but is, is it? Torrential what rain? What does that mean? Is it right. a gentle shower? Right. So the rain stick, the, the traditional one, um, I'm going to show you a couple different sizes here. But traditionally, actually what it is is... Uh, it's the core of a cactus. And then traditionally what they would do is they would take the spines of the cactus, drive them back through the core, and fill up the inside with uh, stones and sand and seal it off. And that's how you would make a traditional rain stick. Um, these are all obviously like sort of manufactured. This, so I think actually these two are probably real. Um, that one's a piece of bamboo, it's larger. And then we'll get to what that one is. Yeah, um, these little guys that he's holding yeah. are about, a, one's about 18 inches and yeah. one's about a foot. So we, got, we have a trickle, right? A trickle. So basically, you're turning that over, and the, yeah. and the material inside is running through those spines yeah. like a plinko machine. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah, and it just sort of you know, and then we sort of have like this is your traditional, it's like a little bit, and then Carol, you could turn over this the monster. So this is like the storm, right? If I want like, turn it all the way over. Yeah, just Wait, yeah. I gotta stand up for this one. Yeah. So that one's like as tall as Carol. 
That's fine. And then um, when things get really out of control. This one's not done. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> so when things get really out of control, we have what we call the rain wheel. So this one just, I could just turn it forever, right? I could just go for hours. It's like monsoon over here, right? It basically looks like a European stop sign. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's I just turning that. it around. It's, it's, it's an infinity rain stick. Yeah. yeah. Um, but this just goes to show like um, nothing so simple in music. You know what I mean? We just have all these like, Options. we have all these moments and, you know, you just never, you can never tell what you're going to need until you're like there on stage in rehearsal and then you're like, oh, wait a minute. I need a little bit more rain. Or, oh, wait a minute, this thing's way too loud. Yeah. Or, you know, and, um, you know, it's like the same goes for like any sort of like instrument that I have in my collection. You know, it's like I have so many different tambourines, so many different triangles, so many different sticks, just like so that I can just get to all these different, all these different timbres, all these different moments. Don't you have a house you know? specifically you bought? A house that had an extra bedroom or an extra uh, well, space for the percussion uh, room. Drums right? always have to go in a basement. <laughs> you don't ever want to put the drums upstairs. That's gonna be no one's gonna be happy with that. <laughs> well, Keith, you've you've raised the bar for yeah. future guests. Everyone's going to have to bring toys from now on. Please, yeah, that was please. amazing. I see the look on Carol's yeah. face, and she's not going to accept any less going forward. This has been Good. amazing, and we want to both thank you. But we do have one more question for you. Okay. It's a traditional question of the show because of our name, the Ghostlight Podcast. Okay. I want to know all the theaters you've been in throughout your musical life. Have you ever seen a ghost? Have I ever seen a ghost? Uh, no, I can't say that I have. But I will say um, there's a light in my house that I always call my ghost light because the thing just pops on on its own all the time. Oh, a, ver- a different a different definition of the ghost light. Yes. Okay. That's yes. great. So that might be the closest I can get to seeing some sort of spectral phenomena. Is it, what room is it in? It's in the kitchen, oh, which is okay. a good room to have a light on now and then. That's Absolutely. I'm wandering downstairs in the middle okay. of the night, you know. Keith, yeah. thank you so much for being a guest today on the Ghost Light Podcast. Yeah, it's, it's really been fun. Amazing. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. You can listen to us on Spotify. No matter where you listen, please make sure to like us because that's how we get new fans. Join us in two weeks when we welcome baritone and Utah Opera audience favorite Michael Kieldy to the studio. We can't wait to see where the conversation goes. Until then, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. Be sure to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for more information on upcoming performances. If you're not already a seasoned subscriber, click on the tickets button to learn more about the benefits of being a part of our family of music lovers. The Utah Symphony and Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>